0: What an incredible privilege to be able to participate um, in that kind of singing to the Lord uh, three times this morning. Uh, what a joy. And just to everyone who's walking off the stage, just want to thank you for your sacrifice to lead us into practice uh, with such excellence. It is great to see each of you today and to worship with you. If you brought with you a Bible, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 6, uh, we're back in um, this book after um, one week away from Mother's Day. Um, and uh, if you're new with us, we're thrilled that you're here. If you're in this room or the amphitheater uh, or at home on live stream, just want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we're in a series through John. It's going to take uh, most of this year and some of, some of next, um, and uh, just to walk through uh, verse by verse uh, through the entire book, and the entire book was written very specifically so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing that we would have life in his name. And life is something that is so critically important to God. He created life, and he's the one who recreates life. And I think that's why it's so important that even as you walked in and you got a little uh, thing like, like this, I think you uh, um, have one, which is just a very uh, broad overview of the master plan for next year, which we'll actually vote on tonight. Um, what you need to know is that every church moves. Providence moves. We we. We do things as a church family. There's movement in what we're doing. But what we always have to remember as a church family is that if our movement ever loses its anchor to the glory of God, then we should stop moving in that direction. And so what, what you find here, which, uh, which um, I'll actually take some time tonight um, to uh, sort of walk through, is, um, is God loves to change lives. Um, We do this not just so that we can do the baptism, but we do this so that we can do the baptism because the baptism bears witness to change lives, and that glorifies Jesus Christ. The hope of our heart and the hope of us even gathering as a church family is that we would glorify God, and He is glorified in such immense ways when people are transformed. That's His intent. That's His intent in our singing. That's That's His intent even in baptism. It just gives... Witness, it bears witness that lives are being changed. And so this is, this is always a privilege. And as we come to God's own word in John chapter 6, the intent that he has for us this morning is not to invest in time so that I can impart information. It's that as we read God's word is that his spirit wants to literally transform our lives. And so it's really important for us to pause and pray and let's ask him for help. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you so much for the gift of the community of faith that we get to be a part of. We thank you, Father, that when you saved us, that you didn't just save us into a relationship with you, which would be sufficient. It would be plenty. It would be gracious, much more than we would ever deserve. Father, you also saved us and connected us to your family. And so we thank you that we get to do this together that in the context of relationships that we get to work out these principles, that we can pray for one another, we can help one another when we're weak and when we're downcast. And so I pray, Father, that you would give us grace. Would you give freedom, even in my own lips, would you speak through weakness and bring glory to Jesus Christ by giving us belief in your word, understanding, and help us to apply it rightly. We love you, and we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this week, uh, as, uh, as is the case every single week, we, uh, we were shown time and again that life is broken. Uh, you could look at any single newscast. You could look at any school. You could look at any business. You could look at any marriage. You can look at any mirror. And you're going to find something looking back at you that's broken. All of us recognize this. We know this isn't home. All of this is supposed to remind us, you know what? Things, things that I see, things that are regular, They are not God intended. Life here on this earth, um, it's sort of a fascinating thing if you really think about it, how broken it really is. But life here on this earth really seems to mimic the feeling that I get because I love bananas, right? But when, when I walk over and I see this beautiful banana. It looks flawless. It looks like there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. This is that perfect color and everything. And all of a sudden you peel it to find there's these dark bruises within. I always hate that. That's so disappointing. Right. And if you don't like bananas, this whole thing is going to fall short. But, but, but the fact is, is deep down when we start to peel days and weeks off of our life, And all of a sudden, we see the bruises of death and anxiety and restlessness and racism and strife and marital conflict and depression and all these bruises that we see. It all bears witness to the fact that something is broken. This was not God's design. And we know this and we have proof of this because the good fruit that surrounds the bruises tells us so. Isn't that true? Like if you only peeled bananas and the only thing that you knew of a banana was that it was the bruise all the way down and that was your banana experience, that would be a perpetually disappointing experience. But the fact is, is even when there's a bruise, there's usually really good, sweet, amazing fruit that surrounds it that you can eat up to the bruise and throw the rest away. And what's interesting is this, is the same thing happens in life. There's these amazing, beautiful incredible things that we see, the beauty of a sunset, the nourishment and the warmth of bread, even relationships and friendships and just amazing good things that we recognize. You know what? Uh, There's sweetness that tells us that the bruises, that they're the things that are out of place. And what you find within the scriptures is this story. It's one story, 66 books. They all tell one, one story. There's a thread that goes through the whole thing. The story starts and it says that God makes all things really good. He made all of it without a bruise. And all of it was meant to be enjoyed, to glorify him. And then the Bible tells us that we sin. And our sin literally brought brokenness and bruises to life in every single corner and arena. And yet, because of the mercy of God, it really is an amazing thing, if you think about this, is that that Christ came even when we were dead in our sin and our life was moving to the place to where it was entirely bruised, is that God came in the person of Jesus Christ and he lived and he died and he was buried and he rose again. And he invited us to believe upon him and if we would, he says, I'll promise to make all things new. I'll make all things right again. And this is the hope of redemption, right? Is that Jesus is literally going to redeem us back to the place to where the bruises are removed. But even now, the good things that we experience, what you need to remember is that all of them are designed and protected by God to point us in our hearts to Jesus Christ and his fulfillment of these good things, and to remind us of the day in heaven when the bruises are going to be completely removed. What we find here in John chapter 6 is this precise lesson. Now, it's a long chapter. There's 71 verses. We're only going to get to verse 15 today. And it's really only going to introduce this very idea. But when you think about bread, I want you to think about this. If God created you, he can create you any way he wants. So he could have created us to where we didn't have to eat. Right? He didn't have to make you that way where you get hungry. And yet, he made you specifically and me in such a way that at regular points of every single day to declare how weak we are is that we have to refuel. And the reason he did this is not only to point to the day to where there will be no dissatisfaction in our heart because in heaven all the bruises are removed. But also to point us to the fact that Jesus Christ is ultimately the satisfaction of our heart. And all the good things that we have from relationships to sunsets and everything else, all of them are a flashing neon arrow that says that's Jesus. All of this is going there. It's all pointing to him. Every bit of it. This is our memory verse, isn't it? John chapter six, verse 35. Would you say it with me? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see what that's saying? God made you in such a way that you need bread in order to show you one day that Jesus is the only bread that can truly satisfy you forever. And this is what John chapter six teaches us. But before we get to that teaching, he's going to make some bread. So let's read how he does this. Verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was now coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred days' wage worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number and Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he gave them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, I want to show you three dominating truths here about Jesus Christ himself, that when we really understand and see Jesus as this, it really casts reflection in terms of how we're supposed to live our life and respond to Jesus. And so the first one is this, is Jesus is deeply interested in the progress of our faith. Now I say that in the plural, our. You could also put your faith. Individually. All that's going on in the world, He's deeply interested in the progress of your faith. Now, this miracle, the feeding of five thousand, is what we call it. It's actually more than five thousand. It says there was five thousand men. They brought their families, wives, and children, and so some people estimate between twelve and twenty thousand people filled the countryside, and Jesus fed all of them with five pieces of toast, barley toast, and two fish. And this miracle is the only one of Jesus' miracles that we call miracles that that every gospel writer records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so there's things that we can learn about this even from the others just to help us in our own understanding of what John wants to teach us. See, there's three things, I believe, that are sitting behind Jesus' heart while he's doing all of this, and I want to show you each of them. The first comes from Matthew's help. Matthew tells us that when all this went down, something had happened. We're told here that Jesus went to the other side of the sea, which means that he was on one side of the sea, he went to the other. Now, why did he do that? Well, Matthew chapter 14 tells us this, that John the Baptist, his followers, came to Jesus and told him that Herod had killed John. So Jesus' forerunner is dead. Well, John was not only just a forerunner, he was a friend. And even a distant family. And, and so what you, what you have here is sorrow. Mark's version t- says that he actually went across to find a quiet place. Relief. And so you need to understand is that while all this is happening, is, there's probably a great deal of sorrow and remorse in his own heart. Bereavement of what's taking place when he's doing all of this. The second thing that you need to understand about the context is that he's probably grieved by the people. And this is why. If you remember in John chapter 4, which is the last time Jesus was up there at the lake. What we're told there in John chapter 4 verse 45 is that the people of Galilee, his hometown, came out when Jesus went up there. And they all welcomed him, not because they believed in him as the son of God, but because they wanted to see a sign. They wanted to see a miracle. And what we find here in John chapter six, verses one and two is that they have not grown. They have come not because they wanna come out because they're believing in Jesus to worship Jesus. They've come out to to, to welcome Jesus in order to be amused by Jesus. In other words, even though we're two chapters along, the people in Galilee who need Jesus to die on the cross for their sin, just like we need him, these people are still not believing him. And these people are not seeing him as their treasure. They're still seeing him as their circus. And so this probably brought not only a measure of sorrow for the death of John, but there's also probably a, just a heaviness of the lostness and the unbelief around from people he grew up with. Well, the third setting point is that we're told in verse 4 that it was the Passover. Now, what's the significance of the Passover? Well, the significance of this Passover was a marker. In one calendar year away, he would hang on a cross. And he knew that this would be the very last time that he would take this Passover feast before he marched back into Jerusalem the next year to literally be separated from his father's presence and to place all the sin of all the world on his shoulders and to die for it. Now, have you ever seen in a basketball game when right in the middle of all of the action, it's not like it's a timeout, they're still playing. Coach brings somebody out and this person is really, really important to the team. And the person comes down and sits down on the bench and the coach with his back to the action, bends down, kneels down, and all of a sudden he's simply addressing this one player. I've often thought, He knows the game's still going on, right? There's five other people he need to coach. But he knows what he's doing at that moment. That there are lessons that need to be taught at this critical moment, even though all of everything's going on around him. There's people shooting the ball and stealing the ball. There's whistles being blown. And all this is happening. And yet he is singular focused on one player for that period of time, seeking to mentor him, to teach this is exactly what Jesus does in this passage. I want you to think about this. Jesus has sorrow within him. He has an unbelieving crowd all around him. And he has a cross before him. And he pauses, turns his back to all of it, and focuses on the progress of one man's faith. He says, Philip. He didn't say disciples. He says, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? Where are we going to find food to buy to Feed all these people. And then John gives clarity. He says, period. And he said this to test, not them, but him. All this is going down. And Jesus is able. He has the capacity, even though there's thousands of hungry people all around him, to focus on one person. And he says, tell me, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip, he's seen the miracles. He knows Jesus can create. He's already done this. But all of a sudden, his vision of Jesus is obscured by the enormous people group that's now surrounding him. And so he says, It's impossible. 200 days' wage could not be sufficient to buy enough bread. I want you to think, of, think for a second. This is Jesus, right? This is Heaven's bakery. This is like the bakery asking a man, where are we going to find bread for all of these people? Philip looks at the bakery and he says, I have no clue. I have no idea how we're going to do this. He could have said, well, Jesus, you're the creator of the universe. You're the Christ. I've already confessed that to you. You want to make food for them? We'll start putting them in lines. You start making food. But at that moment, he did not have the capacity to see that. And Andrew, Andrew jumps into the conversation without invitation. And he doesn't fare any better. After spotting a boy who has some, 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 some fish and some bread, he even feels obligated to confess his unbelief by saying, but what are they among so many? It's like saying, yeah, we got the key to the bakery, but what's this going to help? And so what do we do with this? Two applications I want to give you for this first point. That Jesus is deeply interested in the progress of our faith. The first is this. Is let's remember that Jesus sees us in the crowd. You look around this room and you look around the world and you see all that's going on in the world. It's easy to assume that Jesus is too distracted to examine or care about the condition of our heart. But this, um, this assumption is totally wrong. He knows He sees you. He knows where you're at today. He knows what you're believing. He knows. He knows if you want to be here today. He knows if this is obligation or if this is privilege. He knows. He knows every one of us perfectly. I want you to think about this for a second. Let's just say that you have this weird neighbor, right? And this weird neighbor, he just feels absolutely compelled that every time he does anything of significance, whether it's righteous or sin, he needs to do it on your back porch. Okay? So... He's like, you know, I think I want to watch TV. And so when he watches TV, what he does is he picks up his TV and he walks through your backyard and he comes up on the back porch and says, hey, can I use your power? And all of a sudden he's watching the TV and everything that he's doing, you get to see every time he wants to have an argument with his wife, every time he sins with his body, with his tongue. Anyway, he feels compelled to come up and do it on your porch so that you get to see every time nothing's hidden. He's not doing anything of significance in his house. He's doing everything at your porch. Well, the Bible tells us that earth is God's back porch. He sees everything. You can't hide anything from him. Hebrews chapter four, verse 13 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, Jesus knows what's in your heart today. Oh, we can fake each other, but we can't fake him out. He knows if we're trusting in him today for salvation, And he knows if we're trusting in our works for salvation. He knows if our heart is hot with faith or if it's lukewarm or if it's cold or if it's frozen. He knows. He knows what's going on in your day. And there's really a few things that this does. I think it should, one, it should produce a level of sobriety in our thinking. But it also should provide a level of comfort. See, the comfort is that the God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He knows everything you're doing. So he knows when you have a job interview. That's not blind to him. He knows when, when you're in a pinch. He knows all these things. And so he's not surprised. But the second thing, it should provide a level of sobriety in our thinking because he sees everything. And so we should be careful in the way that we live. But just like Philip, all this is happening all around. And Jesus this morning wants to look right at you. And he says, I want to test your faith today. The second application here to this first point is this, is that let's remember that Jesus is as near as he is God. Now, I realize that this is kind of a weird statement, okay? But if you really think about it long, it's true. Is that we need to remember that Jesus is as near to us as he is God over us. You see, every single one of us have Philip moments, don't we? We have these moments where we believe in Jesus, our... We can sing our third song, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Spirit, I believe in the Church, I believe in the Scriptures, I believe He's coming back, I believe we have great theology. And yet, sometimes our problems can get so big in our attention that it blinds us to the nearness of Jesus Christ. and As a result, we become functioning, practical atheists. What does that mean? Well, theologically, we believe in God and are trusting Him for salvation, But when it comes time for the job application, where we really need to have more credentials than we do, and we think, well, should I leverage or not? Should I lie or not? Should I cut corners or not? And it's really easy for us just to say, you know what, man, I know that God is God, but I'm going to go ahead and take care of this right now. But we need to remember he is as near to us as he is God. And so... When you think about your life and you think about how often we try to manipulate things and leverage things and and move things in order to open up windows and open up doors, we need to remember he 's near he 's near, and his nearness, I believe should inspire two great things: one is faithfulness his nearness to us should not should not should um lead us to like pray for a hole while we hold a shovel. Meaning everything that God is and well everything that God has instructed us is that his nearness should inspire a level of faithfulness. That when we know what we're supposed to do, we put our hands to it and we do it. But you know what? Sometimes when we put our hands to it, even if it's the things he's told us to do, it doesn't open the door, does it? And that's when you have to make a decision. Am I going to trust not only in God, but he's near enough and he cares about what's going on that I need to wait. I just need to wait here. You see, I think the second thing that this truth, this application does in our life is it not only inspires faithfulness, it inspires a desire in our heart to leave room for God to be glorified, for God to intervene. There's a whole lot of believers that plan out their entire life as if God was not necessary. We wonder why we don't see God do amazing things. But behind the scenes, we're leveraging everything we can. We're pulling every lever. Instead of just saying, God, I'm going to be faithful with what you tell me to do, with what your spirit leads me to do, and then I'm going to just leave the door open, and I'm praying, God, would you come through that door in glory and show us your power. And so let's remember that Jesus is as near to us as he is God. Heaven's bakery is just as near to you as he was to Philip. Second truth I want to show you here is that Jesus can take the most meager of means to do the supernatural. He can take the most meager of means to do the supernatural. We're told here Jesus takes the boy's food, he sits the crowd down, he gives thanks, and all of a sudden he starts breaking the food. And the more he breaks and hands out, the more is left to break. You remember, Jesus did not need the boy's food. He can create food out of nothing. He created the whole world out of nothing. But this is his delight. Jesus loves to take the sacrificial, often small gifts of trusting people and multiply these gifts to accomplish his purpose. So how do we respond to this kind of God? Well, let's invest our lives and resources in God's kingdom. Let's invest our lives and resources in God's kingdom. You see, this overview of the master plan that's in your hand, you can read over that. There's a lot of things that are there, but you need to know something is the things that we've been praying and the things that we're hoping to see God do this next year will require us to avoid spiritual nearsightedness. Nearsightedness is when we can see up close, but we cannot see far away. And so many times what happens in our life is we can only see, we can only allow ourselves to give our lives to what we can see that's going to immediately affect our life today. And I want you to know that if we are nearsighted, so nearsighted that we have to focus on just what we have today, then we will not prepare ourselves in any way, whether it's a building or whether it's leaders or whether it's ministries or whether it's the next generation of our children, To be thinking about what happens in 20 years from now. These decisions are going to affect them. When we're all not here. And not only that nearsightedness. But what about eternity? There's a lot of people that spend everything that they have on themselves. For this kingdom. And this kingdom that they're building here on the earth. Is literally going to be washed aside. Just like a sandcastle at high tide. You can't take it with you. And so. And so. We need to avoid spiritual nearsightedness and be like this boy. You see, this boy could have licked his food and said, you should have brought your own, right? He could have given his food that, you know, hey, I'm going to lick it. Now, you don't want it. It's mine. He could have put it underneath his bag all day and just said, you know what? I got mine. I don't care if anyone didn't bring theirs. I got mine. And just a little nibble here and there instead of putting it out, you know, he could have lived that way. You know, a lot of believers do. He said, well, I don't really care what happens to the rest, but so long as I get mine. He could have done this. And in doing so, spoiled literally the whole thing. All of this took place because the boy said, well, God is not a whole lot, but here. Here. Do something with this. So he gave it to Jesus and Jesus speaks to this in Matthew chapter six, when he says, do not lay up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. What this means is that if we do not invest in Jesus kingdom, now we impoverish ourselves forever. You see, God cares so deeply about our giving. And when I'm talking about giving, what I'm talking about is everything that is entrusted to us to be a steward. That's time, talent, and treasure. The eternal God gives you a measure, a limited number of seconds to live on this earth and every one of those seconds is supposed to be spent living for his glory. He's given you abilities from his ability. He doesn't give you all the abilities, he gives you some of them and those are clues to how he wants you to glorify him on the earth, He gives you out of his abundance. He owns everything in the world and he gives you resources on the earth. And he says, I want you to leverage these for my glory. I want you to give them to me. I want you to invest in the next kingdom. And why he cares so much about our giving is because he cares about our heart. Matthew chapter six, verse 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What this means is that our resources and our heart, they never meet in a dark alley and say, well, I'm so surprised to see you here. All of your gifts, all of your resource, and all of your time, they are the clearest reflection of what you value. They are that pristine pond that you look over and you put your face down, and they are an accurate reflection of what you care about, what you spend your money on, where you invest your time, and where you invest your talents. That's what you care about. You can say, well, I care about this, but I just don't have enough time to do that. Well, you just don't care about it very much. We, we care about what we do. We care about how we spend our days, and we care about what we spend our money on. And that's just what we care about. And Jesus wants us to care about the kingdom because he wants to invest in the kingdom because he wants our hearts to be caring about that kingdom. You see, in your hand, that thing, that little master plan, you have to understand something. is to see this come to fruition, it's literally going to require that everybody who calls providence their home is going to place their little meager thing, no matter how meager it is, and say, God, this is what I've got, and I'm going to give it to you. But I promise you, is that if we do that as a body of faith, he will mobilize it to do everything he wants to do in this body. That's the hope that we have. And the last point is this, is that Jesus displays his power to develop our faith. He displays his power to develop our faith. It's an amazing thing to me that there literally came a point in this afternoon when people had so much to eat that they started throwing Jesus' miracle food in the grass. Now think about this for a second. You know when you're full, when you take miracle food, And you go, I just cannot eat another thing. And you don't even think to put miracle food in your pocket for later. You just say, enough. And you throw it in the grass. And now check this out. The Son of God is sovereign over all things while he's taking this fish and the bread and he's breaking them. He knows the very moment to where that last piece that he just broke off will be the last part that's literally ingested by somebody in this massive crowd. And then he continues to make more food. And why is he making more food knowing that the food is going to be thrown out into the grass? It's because he has 12 doubting disciples who've forgotten who he is. And so he says, this is what I want you to do. I want every one of you to get a basket and I want you to go down hands and knees in front of 10,000 people, however many people were there. And I want you to get down and I want you to pick up the scraps that they've thrown out that they can't put in their belly and fill baskets. And 12 doubting disciples come back with 12 basketfuls of fragments. And all of a sudden their eyes are now opened. Why did he do this? because he cares so deeply that we would trust him. I want you to know that in my journey of faith, which really has included more blunders than brilliance, I have seen Jesus time and again allow me to get to a place where my rope is literally exhausted and where the power of Jesus Christ is required. It's required. When I think about my life right now and the things that I care about most, Every one of those things go back to a pivotal moment where literally there was a decision of faith where I looked at that and I said, God, I just can't. There's no way this can happen. But I feel like you're telling me to do this. See, there's a lot of people who doubt the reality and the presence of God in their daily life because they simply do not step out in faith when they are out of the rope. When's the last time you've done something that required God to show up? Everything that I value in life, this is the reality. And what I've learned is this, is that Jesus allows me a certain amount of struggle, enough struggle to lead me to look to him. I've learned that Jesus is immensely powerful. And I've learned that I can trust in Jesus. And this is the application for this third point is let's trust Jesus with our lives. For some of you, that means that you need to trust him as your Savior because you don't know him as your Savior and Lord. You're still counting on your works to absorb all of the sin of your life. And you need to trust his words that says you will not see heaven without me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You need to trust him at that place. For many of us, we've already trusted him at that place, but there's something else that you need to trust him for. I don't know what that is, but you do and he does. Now what happens next is remarkable. The people see the sign and they go, this must be the prophet who's coming into the world. This is the promised one. And then all of a sudden, the thought of free food and no taxes sound like a really good deal Forever. So they said, I tell you what, let's not make you an elected official who has to have another election in a few years. Let's make you king. Perpetual provision. And Jesus withdraws. He leaves the whole crowd. Now, why did he do that? The reason is because Philippians 2, 6 through 11. This is the last line. Though he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why did he not allow the crowd to crown him? Because the crowd needed him to die for them. And so he said no to being king the first time around. He went to a cross and he died and then he was buried and he rose again again he went up to heaven. The Bible tells us he's coming back again. And when he comes back again, he will come back as the king of kings. He will come back as the Lord of lords. And that time, whether you believe that here on the earth or not, every eye will see his authority over all things. And every knee will bow to the ground. And every tongue is going to confess that is the Lord. He is God. And it's Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to wait. Because if you do wait, it's too late. We get to do that now, Providence. We get to worship him now. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. We believe, Jesus, that you are the Christ. And we confess with our tongue that you are Lord. And we pray, Father, that you, even in this moment where we, where we have just music played over us. God, would you help us to not allow your word to fall upon the carpet here? Would you help us to examine even our own hearts and see if there's anything that we need to believe or anything we need to do or anything we need to confess? God, would you do your work upon us? And even as we take this offering, we pray that no matter how meager it is, God, that you would take it and you would glorify yourself and expand your kingdom. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name.